Welcome to Floods of Justice. This morning's topic is voter suppression. Grab your coffee. We'll be right back. If you have your Bibles, open them to Amos chapter 5. And I want to read verse 24 where the prophet Amos says, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, justice, justice. The Floods of Justice podcast looks at the issues of our day from a biblical perspective without the labels. Led by Reverend Dr. Kevin Riggs, affectionately known as Pastor Kevin or Rev Kev, he is the senior pastor of Franklin Community Church and founder of Franklin Community Development in Franklin, Tennessee. He is also a published author, teacher, professor, activist, abolitionist, husband, father, grandfather, scuba diver, and coffee connoisseur, which is why this podcast is brought to you from the Coffee House at 2nd and Bridge in downtown Franklin. Let's begin the conversation. Good morning, Pastor Kevin. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good, I'm good. We are back at the Coffee House on 2nd and Bridge. This is our second episode back, and uh, it's good to be back. Yes, it is. It's good to be back. Uh, business is starting up slowly, it looks like. You know, before all this happened, you walked in at 8 o'clock on a weekday. The place was packed. So, uh, But uh, I know uh, the owner's a friend of mine, and he's glad to be open. And it sure, it sure is glad to be back, and slowly but surely, um, things are, are going to open back up, and we pray uh, that we maintain the best that we can with social distance and we don't have a rebound and have to do all this all over again. We uh, disc- Disclaimer here, if you hear any beeping in the background, they are doing full road construction about 20 feet from our room here. Um, so yeah, you, you may notice that they didn't use the six weeks. Of well, that's what Mike said. Mike, <laughs> Mike, the owner, was like, you know, I was really thinking they got – all this time, no businesses are open. They should really finish all this road construction while yeah. we're while we're shut down. But uh, but they didn't uh, for whatever reason. They didn't get it done, and so now they're in full bore, and and uh, parking is hard to get to, and and uh, and so you may hear some noise, but uh, just bear with us. All right. So today we are doing voter sup- uh, suppression. <laughs> I can't even say the it's word. It's hard to say. It's I know suppression, say. and it's early. Didn't do my tongue twister exercises this morning. But we are heading, uh, you know, into an election, a presidential election season. Um, so this is, a, this is a widespread issue. Yeah, and we're just going to scratch the surface. I want to give a little bit of historical background to, uh, uh, to this topic. And, um, um, but, you know, I mean, full confession up front, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, I don't know how long it's been since I started voting um, some of these things that we're going to talk about today, I thought, yeah, that's, that, that's common sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, but when you study the history of our country and, uh, and how um, there have been all kinds of movements to try to suppress votes or, or to try to limit people's ability to vote, uh, then you start to realize what, how anything today, it, it, it's kind of like, if I can use this analogy, it's kind of like if you're a Second Amendment guy. You know, I'm, I'm not really a gun person. I own a gun, but... Uh, but, uh, you know, if, if you're going to break into my house, give me a couple hours notice because i got to go get some bullets and, and go to the target range and practice a little bit. I mean, yep. I, you know, I, I'll throw my gun at you, maybe, you know. <laughs> Just hold the head. still in yeah. a well-lit room. Yeah, and you know. Uh, so I'm not, this is not a gun episode, but the people who are, who are fanatical about the Second Amendment, any type of suggestion of gun um, control, freaks them out because it, they don't want to go down that road of where their rights to own a gun are going to be limited in any way. And so in a, in a sense, the voter suppression is the same way. Because of the history of our country, uh, then, then there are some people, and I find myself more and more in line with, with, with this, then there are some people who any type of regulation or any type of obstacle 
uh, that is put in the way of somebody voting uh, that makes it more difficult for somebody to vote, well, then they, it, it's panic mode because, no, our, we have a history of this, and, uh, and so we don't want, we don't want anything to, to interfere with, uh, with our ability to vote. And so I think you got, if you can keep that in mind, I think then uh, that even if you don't agree with everything, you, you can at least see where people are coming from, that there is this fear based on past experience um, that voter suppression of any kind is a bad thing. And so when they hear any, get any type of wind that there may be another uh, barrier put in place to vote, then, then, they, uh, uh, then they rightfully so get a little nervous about my, my right to vote being taken away from me. Yeah. Well, it seems like there's <clears> – <throat> I'm generalizing here, but it seems like there's two groups of people in this country, and the, the younger or the current modern generation uh, tend to think, well, there's – maybe a, a utopian view of of America in that, oh, no, it's the land of the free and opportunity. There is not any racism anymore. There's not any uh, systemic problems anymore. We live in a free democracy. We have the power to do all this. And then there's a group that goes, no, let's look at our history. Mm-hmm. Like, and it, it doesn't show that at all. And because that foundation was laid, this reality that we're, we're in if you if you see that it's it's a false reality because there's a, a major population of people that don't experience those same freedoms, whatever it is in education, in healthcare, in yeah, it, it works that way. I mean, it, just to be honest and have an honest look at history, our history, yes, you know, there, there's a lot of good things that happen, but there's a lot of bad things that happen, and the foundation of our country uh, was really built more on secular humanism than it was, uh, you know, the scripture. I mean, the the, the founding fathers claimed to be Christians; they weren't quote, evangelical Christians. A lot of them were deist, um, and a lot of them would have been of other religions, which is fine, but it wasn't the same type of view of, uh, of Scripture that, um, that we would nece- necessarily have in the evangelical church. And, and you know, the, our founding fathers based a lot of their stuff on what was going on in France and the French Revolution and, and the philosophies of that than they, did, than they did Scripture. They just happened to be Christians, but yet our government was set up in such a way uh, that it oppressed people from the very beginning. And uh, you look at the Native Americans, for example, and then, of course, slavery, uh, but then other immigrants. You know, if you weren't um, wasp, white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, uh, then there would be a time in our history where you, were, you faced some difficult times. We've overcome a lot of that, but there's a whole lot of it still. Yeah. And a lot of it now is at the systemic level. And so individuals will think, well, I'm not a racist. I'm not oppressing anybody. And, uh, and you may not be, but the systems in place still are there that, uh, that keep people down. And, that, and that's kind of where this comes into play. Um, you know, in the middle of this pandemic, this, this controversy about voter suppression has kind of come up again. And it started with the Republicans refusing to delay an election in Wisconsin right in the middle of all this. And so, you know, the, and so the, the criticism was you're making people go out in public and stand in long lines to vote when you could have delayed it because it was just a primary, right? Or, or I mean, it was, there, there could have been some local elections going on, but as far as the federal stuff, it was just kind of a, a primary-like type thing. And, you know, or you could allow them uh, to mail in their ballot. You didn't have to make them go out there. And then, that's, then people started thinking, well, we got an election in November, a, a big election, and, um, you know, if we're still in the middle of this social distancing stuff, how is that going to work? You know, and then... Uh, and, and then in Wisconsin, I can't remember the exact numbers, but because of the pandemic, you still had to go vote, but they shut down thousands of polling sites. And a, and a large number of those polling sites would have been in minority communities. 
In other words, it's like, well, we don't need this many. And so if you were in the minority community, you'd have to drive a good distance to get to a place uh, to vote. And so that, that would be a form of voter suppression. But that's kind of where, <clears throat> where all this started coming from, at least in my own mind. And so with the presidential elections just a few months away, um, you know, people are wondering, and there's a, there's a move to allow for mail-in ballots for everyone. Um, and uh, because, you know, do we want people to risk their health uh, just to go just to go and vote. And, you know, it falls down party lines, unfortunately. Um, the Republicans are standing in the way of widespread mail-in ballots, um, and thus the Democrats then are, are crying that they're trying to suppress the vote. You know, and so Has that always been the case, or is that it within the last four years? Has what always been that the case? That Republicans <clears throat> were uh, opposed to the uh, mail-in uh, or, or you know, any type of uh, voter reform other than maybe adding more. And I'm, I'm not trying to set any traps here. I'm just trying to understand. Democrats I think it's really been more conservative liberal. And at different times in our country's history, one party has been conservative and the other one's been a little more liberal. Like, like for example. I guess what I'm asking is, 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 it, is it whatever the current administration is in office, is that the one that's, that's wanting to control the, the voting? So it, it just shifts okay, whether it's a Democrat. Right? Or yeah. has, it, has it consistently been a party line issue? I think it's consistently been a party line issue, and it's consistently been something that affects the minority vote in the South. Um, there's a, and this might be another episode of back in the early 1900s, what was called as a, known as the Southern Strategy came into place, uh, where basically there was a manipulation of the Electoral College, um, and then it was, and a strategy was put in place that basically if you could win the South or a good number of the Southern states, uh, then you could win the election. And, um, and that has been manipulated, for the most part, for the party that is more conservative. Um, and, you know, again, because, you know, Martin Luther King was a registered Republican. Um, and so at, at different times in history, the Democrats and the Republicans have kind of switched, you know, different things that were going on. Um, and, uh, but, as you, but if you break it down to conservative and then the more liberal or more progressive, uh, then that, that's kind of been consistent through the ages, what's, what's been different is which party is considered the, the conservative and which party is considered um, the more progressive or liberal, uh, or liberal one. But, uh, but for the most part, it's, it's the dominant group as a whole, whatever that dominant group may be, that has tried to implement things that would limit um, voting yeah. uh, for the most part. And that, that's kind of been uh, consistent. And so uh, to me, this is an important topic. Um, but yet, at the same time, I also know that the Bible doesn't specifically address voting rights. You know, you can't find a verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt vote, you know. Um, and, and part of that is because there are no democracies or representative democracies in the Bible. I mean, it was kings and queens and emperors, you know, so you didn't have that form of government. And so, you know, people weren't in a position to vote uh, for who they wanted to be, uh, wanted to be their leaders. And so, but while the Bible doesn't address voting rights Specifically, the Bible talks a whole lot about equality, taking care of the poor and the widow and the orphan and the immigrant, and it talks a lot about about making sure that the policies that your government have um, benefit um, the people who are on the bottom, looking out for the marginalized. I mean, the Bible says a lot about that kind of stuff, and those verses are written to the government, really, especially in, in the Old Testament, uh, about, you know, you cannot, you cannot make policies that hurt the vulnerable people. Um, and so, and so that's kind of where you, you, you know, you get this kind of a idea that we need to talk about this and, and there is a Christian way to look at this because we are to stand up and speak out and speak for and speak with uh, the people who are on the margins of society and the people who are vulnerable. And if those people 
um, feel like that their rights to vote are being suppressed, then, then we, I think, as followers of Jesus, who live in a democracy or represent a democracy where we have the opportunity to help elect officials and set policies, then, then we, have, we have to confront it and try to get those things uh, done that are more in line with Scripture um, than uh, just, you know, well, you know, that's, that's the government. We're not, you know, give unto Caesar what is Caesar and unto God what is God, and so let's not involve ourselves in those in those discussions. I don't think that's, that's really a, uh, following the biblical principles is a good way to do it. We live, in a, we live in a very, very unique time because as followers of Jesus, we can help self, set policy. Yeah. You know, and what is interesting to me, even the most conservative among us want to set policies when it comes to right-to-life issues. But then the moment you start talking about just policies in other areas, oh, you're being too political. You know, like, no, no, no. The Bible talks a whole lot about equality and about the, you know, the orphan and the widow and, and all of that. It talks a whole lot about that. Um, and, you know, one or two scriptures that address abortion. Well, it's um, strange that, <coughs> to me that the, the, the Old Testament was so clear about helping marginalized communities. And then when Jesus came and said, hey, actually take care of marginalized communities, it upset so many people. And, and then mm-hmm. here we are in a modern society, and we're saying take care of marginalized people, and we're still as upset as they were in Jesus' time or yeah, in the Old Testament. It's like yeah. it's never ending. And what's really upsetting to me is that people will tell me, well, that's the church's responsibility. And I'm like, I agree with you, but the church isn't doing it. Yeah. You know, and so, um, and so we have to look at the government. Uh, I, I describe it in, in another episode we did of the micro and the macro level of it, and that churches help with the micro, with, at the micro level uh, of it. You know, like I can help this person find a house. I can help this person uh, get a job and all that but I need the government to have the policies that make livable wage possible, that make affordable housing possible, you know, because I can't, I can't do anything about that. I can go visit and minister to people on death row, but I, can't change, but I can't change the law that says you shouldn't have executions. The government has to do that, so I have to petition the government. I have, I have to protest the government until they change that policy. Yeah. But at the same time, at the micro level, ministering to the prisoner and, uh, and all of that. Uh, but anyway... So that's kind of what we want to do. And what I want to do is um, in this first few moments before we take a break, and few moments is, evangel- is evangelistically speaking, so it could be two hours, but in the first few moments, <laughs> all right, um, just kind of do a quick history of voter suppression in our country because I think that's, you have to understand that before you understand what's going on today, I think. And so here's just a couple of quotes. Uh, this is from President Ronald Reagan. He said, for this nation to remain true to its principles, we cannot allow any American's vote to be denied, diluted, or defiled. The right to vote is the crown jewel of American liberties, and we will not see its luster diminished. And then, in 2014, in his State of the Union address, President Barack Obama said, it should be the power of our vote, not the size of our bank account, that drives our democracy. And then this is from an article um, that, that I read um, uh, when I was researching for this, and, and it, here, here's just a quote. Widespread voter suppression, particularly against historically marginalized groups, is a reoccurring problem in the United States. Each election cycle, untold numbers of eligible Americans are prevented from voting due to barriers in the voting registration process, restrictions on casting ballots, <clears throat> and discriminatory and partisan-rigged uh, district Uh, maps uh, known as gerrymandering voter suppression measures can differ by state and even by individual county and while some some voter suppression measures actively seek to discriminate against certain groups 
Others result from innocent administrative errors and glitches. Regardless of its form or intent, however, voter suppression is, re- is relentlessly effective in preventing voting eligible Americans from contributing to the electoral process. And that's from the Center for American Progress. Uh, but here's just some facts. All right? I want to run through these quickly. Uh, but did you know, in 1776, at the founding of our country, only white males who owned land and were at least 21 years old could vote? Did you know that? No. I mean, most of this, sadly. Okay. <laughs> I'm like trying to even pick my brain and go, did I ever even hear that in high school? I don't, I don't think that I ever did. Yeah, well, well because I had, I've taught this before, I, I mean, I, I've known that for a while, but, but think about that. In, in, when our country was founded, the right to vote was only given to wealthy white males. That's it. Now, think of all the people in our country that that eliminated from voting based on gender, race, economics, uh, and so forth. I mean, so that was highly discriminatory, you know, and we're a free country. Yeah. But the founding documents was this is, this free is, for who? yeah, this is the only people who could vote. And, and, it, and so that was in 70, 1776. And so it wasn't until 1868. So almost a hundred years later and a civil war later that the 14th amendment was passed. And the 14th amendment of the U.S. Constitution granted full citizenship rights, including the right to vote, to all men born, of natu- born or naturalized in the United States. So at that point in time, it really wasn't all men because Native Americans still couldn't vote, even in 1868. Uh, but at least now you had, um, you know, if you were a, a, a born citizen or a naturalized citizen and you were a male and you were 21 and you were African American or Chinese American or whatever, you had the right to vote, okay? Uh, and then in 1870, the 15th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution eliminated racial barriers to voting. And, and really what that means is even though the 14th Amendment, um, you know, an African-American, a, a freed slave could vote, immediately in the South especially, there were things that were put in place to make it difficult for the African-American to vote. Even though they had the right to vote, now in the Jim Crow era, now all these barriers started coming up to keep them uh, from voting. And so in, the, in 1870, another amendment to the Constitution that, tried to eliminate those barriers. It didn't work, but at least it was at least there was attempt. But still women did not have the right to vote in 1870 and Native Americans didn't have the right to vote. Uh, and so African American males had the right to vote, but during the Jim Crow era, which is roughly 1880s through, you know, at least 1920s, somewhere around that time frame, barriers were put in place for the sole purpose of keeping African Americans from voting. And here, here's some of those barriers. One was a literacy test that lasted for a long time that basically, you know, could you read? And if you couldn't read, well, then you weren't allowed to vote. And most African-American males, because of slavery and then because of poverty, there was a high lit, you know, illiteracy rate. And so that eliminated them from, from voting. So you had the literacy test. You had the poll tax, which was a fee that you had to pay to vote that was burdensome on the poor. And that was done on purpose, you know. And, and for, for a wealthy person, the poll tax may not mean anything. The, if you were wealthy, you knew who was running the poll taxes, so they'd probably just not charge you anyway, you know. But yet it was put in place, and now I have to pay this money, um, you know, because we got to pay the election officials, and, you know, and it costs money to set up the polling sites. I mean, there would be all kinds of excuses, you know. No, we're not really charging you to vote. We're just trying to get the money uh, to cover our expenses, 
you know, but yet, but then that would stop people from voting. And then, and this is crazy, but even a morality test where you, you couldn't, even though if you were eligible to vote, you wouldn't be able to cast a vote until somebody could testify that you were a person of good character. You know, and so, I mean. And who vouches for that person? And who vouches for that person, exactly. Um, and then, <clears throat> then, of course, just basic intimidation. Um, and, and, um, and, you know, in the last couple of elections, we've seen examples still of just intimidation. Uh, where you know people will will put position themselves around poll sites and and look a certain way or maybe even carry rifles you know because because it's a free country and that would keep they wouldn't have to say anything but it would just keep people keep people away uh, from voting and so intimidation tactics were so successful that in 1940 now remember African Americans had the right to vote in the in the 18 around 1870 or so uh, but in 1940. Uh, only 3% of eligible African-American voters were actually registered to vote. You know, so, so only 3% of those. And so those barriers that were in place, especially in the South, targeted African-American and poor communities uh, to keep them from voting. Then in 1920, the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was ratified, giving women the right to vote. So from 1776 to 1920, you know, women didn't have the right to vote. But still, Native Americans didn't have the right to vote, even in 1920. It was in 1924 with the Indian Citizenship Act uh, that finally granted Native Americans citizenship and voting rights uh, from that. But still, in spite of all these strides for voting rights, poll taxes and and literacy tests continued through this time, again, especially in the South. Uh, And so in 1964, and now we're getting close to our time, the Federal Civil Rights Act is passed to ensure that all men and women aged 21 and older, regardless of race, religion, or education, had the right to vote. And then the 24th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution is ratified in 1964, eliminating poll taxes. Uh, so, you know, again, so the poll taxes were around up until uh, the mid-60s. Then in 1965, um, the Federal Voting Act, Rights Act suspended literacy tests. So think about how long that that happened, yeah. you know. Uh, in 1965, that's finally eliminated. Registration and voting rights are now federally enforced instead of at the local level. Then in 1971, the 26th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution lowered the voting age from 21 to 18. And then in 1975, the Federal Voting Rights Act is renewed, permanently banning literacy tests nationwide, um, so even after they said it was banned, it still was going on, so they had to do it again. Um, Section 203 to, the, to, that, to that act is added, requiring that translated voting materials in areas with large numbers of citizens with limited English skills. And so it wasn't until the 1970s that if you were a U.S. citizen but you didn't speak English, you really couldn't vote. You know, but then the law was passed that you got to make the vote, you got to put the voting ballot in other languages um, so that uh, so that you can vote, and then and so now get this in 2013. Okay, in 2013, the Supreme Court struck down the heart of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 um, by a five to four vote. So it was along partisan lines uh, at the Supreme Court, uh, freeing nine states, mostly in the South, to change their election laws with without advanced federal approval. And so what was going on was these states were were passing basically voter ID laws or vote, you know, trying to add that to it. And it got caught up and went all the way to the Supreme Court. And then finally the Supreme Court 
uh, stopped it and said, no, they can do that. And so they basically overturned the 1965 Voting, voting Rights Act. Um, and so what that did is that opened the door to voter identification laws, and we'll pick up that in a second. Uh, but, but one more thing. Here's another part of this suppression that's in our history. To this day, people in prison cannot vote. And then there are certain felony convictions that prohibit you from voting for the rest of your life. So even after you've paid your dues to society and you get out, you can't vote for the rest of your life. And again, that targets a, a, a large number of minorities because the, the, the percentage of minorities in prison um, and who have felonies on the record compared to the percentage of minorities as a whole in the United States is, is way out of whack. You, you know, and so if you get certain felonies, well, then that's it for the rest of, rest of your life. I think this is a just if you're listening right now, take note of this theme in in our country of go back to the beginning of freedoms are given and then loopholes and restrictions are added. Freedoms are given, loopholes and restrictions. So out of one side of our face, we're saying, all right, we're going to give you these privileges and the same privileges and freedom that everybody else has. But covertly we're going to write these other laws and restrictions and hurdles and hoops that you got to jump through yeah and it's the over and over and the restrictions are usually targeted to the poor and minorities and among the minorities it's usually african americans yeah um you know that that's where the restrictions come from to keep to keep certain people from having their voice uh, heard well it's amazing that between african americans native americans and women in this country that white males even exist today. <laughs> if there was a mutiny, like we, we as white men have oppressed such massive numbers of people since the beginning of this country, that I'm, the more I read about the history, I'm just like, I don't know what to say. Yeah, and there would be logical, like, you know, I can hear the arguments, you know, in the, in the halls of Congress when our country was being formed uh, okay, we got you know we want to have open and free democracies, but only landowners can vote. Because well, why? Well, because the landowners are the ones who who really they've got skin in the game. You know they're, you know, and so if you were a white male of twenty one, but you rented a place to live, then you couldn't vote. It was only only and so that's why I mean it, it targeted the minorities and the poor, uh, and you know don't don't ever forget that. Um, but most of them and most of them then specifically tar targeted African Americans, with the exception of Native Americans. And this may be a whole other issue. Native Americans are the most oppressed people in the United States, um, even to this day. And, uh, you know, the, the Bureau of Indian Affairs in 2020, the Bureau of Indian Affairs is in the Department of Agriculture. Okay, it falls under the Department of Agriculture. What our country said in its foundings, and we're still saying all the way up to 1920, to 2020 is that Native Americans are a natural resource in the same way that the forest is a natural resource. They're, they're not recognized as humans still yeah. at, at that systemic level. And so, you know, reservations are third world countries right in the middle of uh, one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Um, and during this pandemic, we've seen that where, you know, the, if the virus gets on the, on the reservations, it spreads like wildfire and and the abuse and all that everything that goes on in the reservations in the middle of our country the vast 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 majority of people don't know about um and so and and anytime a lot of times when we're talking about these issues we don't even talk about the native americans because they're almost out of sight out of mind yeah 
you know, from that. But well, anyway, I hear that statement of, you know, you go back and quote speeches, all men are created equal. And it's like, oh, that's what our, found, our, our country was based on. It's like, but let, let's define what those people thought people were. So if you yeah. weren't considered a person, then technically, yes, all people are created equal, but we don't consider you African Americans as people. Yeah. We don't consider well, you African Americans were three fifths human. I mean, that was in the law. That was in the yeah, the law. exactly. Uh, you know, but anyway, sorry, continue. Yeah, no, let's. <laughs> this is a good time to take a break, and uh, and so when we get back, we'll we'll shift topics into a more modern day uh, voter suppression. The Floods of Justice podcast is brought to you by the Coffee House at Second and Bridge. Since 1904, they have stood at the corner of 2nd Bridge Street in the heart of downtown Franklin. Their house-made menu items are crafted with care and love. Baked goods are made from scratch each morning, and specialty coffee is always ground and brewed fresh. So come on down, wander the rooms, join us at the coffee bar, and find a space to enjoy the food, the drink, and maybe even a recording of the Floods of Justice podcast. Uh, we have been laying out the kind of the uh, a brief history of voter suppression and voter rights in this in this country um, and has brought us up to 2013 I think was the was the latest uh, change there and now we're in 2020 heading into an election uh, election yeah. season and so. again in 2013 um, the Supreme Court basically overturned or took the heart out of the uh, voter uh, the voter right act of 1965 and what that did is that opened up the door for basically you know the instead of the government the federal government really, really regulating and enforcing voter rules. It turned it back over, and now states can do whatever they want to do, basically. Uh, they, can re, they can redraw the lines. They can add. Uh, technically, they could probably go back to polling taxes if they wanted to. And so it took the heart out of it, and uh, so that voter suppression then uh, could pick up uh, even more. So the dominant party in 2013 was whom? Well, I mean, uh, Obama was in office, yeah, president, was in office but, but, but the Senate and the Congress and all that would have been Republican. Right. Yeah. So just just to point that out, yeah. because people may point fingers and go, well, who was president at the time? It's like, yeah. well, Obama was president, but who was the controlling party? Yeah, it's kind of we're down a rabbit hole. But let yeah. me say this really, really quick. It's kind of like I've heard people say, you know, uh, with the stimulus check that we're getting, if you're against President Trump, you need to send the stimulus check back. And I'm like, no, 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 no. The Congress, bipartisan, a bipartisan <laughs> resolution, the Congress is the one who authorized that, and he signed it. But he didn't really have he 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 didn't have a lot to do with it. He just happens to be the president, and he signed the actual bill. But Congress, you know, both Republicans and Democrats and Independents hammered out all the details, and and uh, and and so it came from it comes from Congress, not just one, you know, one person. But that's yeah. that's a whole other yeah. issue, Anyways. right? But anyway, so often when I'm talking about social justice issues and criticizing our government, um, people will say something me like this um, you know show me in the new testament where jesus condemned caesar and tried to change the laws and and protested against the government and then they'll say you can't find it because he did none of those things and so we should stay out of politics as well um, and uh, ex except for the abortion issue you know i mean but all other issues are political um, and so my response when they say that is usually along the lines of well first of all jesus did uh, call herod a sly fox in Luke chapter 13, and that was not a compliment. I mean, that was, that was, you sly fox it, was you. it was treason, really, <laughs> yeah. uh, for him uh, to do that in that day and time. John the Baptist criticized Herod for his immorality, and he had his head cut off for it. Uh, and the Gospels are not a biography of Jesus' life. Rather, the Gospels tell the story of Jesus from four different perspectives, 
And plus, you have to realize that the bulk of the Gospels tell us only about one week in the life of Jesus, you know. Um, and so who knows what he did that's not recorded. Uh, John said if we put down everything Jesus did, there's not enough books in the world to contain it. I think of that all the time, yeah. Uh, you know. And so furthermore, Jesus was executed in part. Now, we understand the theological implications of the crucifixion. We understand, at least I hope we do. But at that moment in time, in part, he was executed because he claimed to be the king of the Jews, which was treason toward the Roman government and punishable by death. That's because the Jews knew they could not crucify Jesus. They had to get the Roman government to do it. And so what they did was he's a revolutionary. He's, tre- he's treason. He says he's the king, not Caesar. Uh, and all that. And so you could say that in a way, Jesus' willingness to go to the cross was a protest against the government. You know, in, in a way. Now, theologically, we understand it's about forgiveness of sins. But in the historical context of what was going on at that time, this, this was, you know, he, he, and they put on the king of the Jews, they put that on his cross, you know, because that was his crime, um, basically protesting uh, against the government. And so then I also like to add that Jesus, nor anyone else in the Bible for that matter, lived in a democracy. And we talked about this a little bit already. Or they didn't live in a representative democracy. Jesus was not in a position to vote for his political leaders or to influence public policy. We as U.S. citizens are in that position and we should use our influence to vote people to, uh, who support, to vote for people who support the biblical principles of caring for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the marginalized, and we should influence and vote for policies that do the same thing. It's the golden rule, really, not the world's version of the golden rule. You know, he who has the gold rules. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about Jesus' golden rule where he said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, what that means to me is if I want affordable health care for me, then I have the responsibility to fight for my neighbor to have affordable health care as well. You know, if I want a livable wage, then I have a responsibility to fight for my neighbor to have a, little, a livable wage. And on and on and on you could, you could go. If I want it, then I have to fight for everybody else to be able to have it. To have it to the same level and quality. To have it to the same level. Yeah, yeah, to have it to the same level and quality uh, as everyone else. And so then if I want the right to vote... Then I, have, then I have the responsibility in a representative democracy to make sure that my neighbor has the right to vote unencumbered by these faulty barriers. You know, it, and so that's the biblical principle. The Bible doesn't say thou shalt vote or thou shalt not vote, but it gives us these biblical principles of equality and speaking up for the poor, and, uh, and then we live in a representative democracy where it is our duty to try to influence who's in office and what the policies are. And so as a Christian, I want the policies to reflect um, my, my, what I think the Christian ethic is, you know, basically the, ser- the, the Sermon on the Mount. But then I like to point out that no one, you know, it's always tell me where the New Testament says that because they know the Old Testament is full of, of, is full of references. Uh, of, of, of taking care of the poor and social justice issues. And so they don't want to talk about the Old Testament. They want to jump immediately to the New Testament and, uh, and, and then quote you know, Romans 13. Um, but anyway, so what I want to do for the rest of the podcast is look at these two major voter suppression tactics that are used today. I'm going to mention several more at the end, but the, these two main ones uh, that are used today. 
The first is voter ID. Voter ID. Now, this sounds like a no-brainer, right? I mean, you know, hey, yeah, you, get, you need to show an ID before you vote. Well, when you, when you register to vote, you get a registration card. That should be enough. Yeah. You know, that, that's your, I'm registered to vote, you know. Um, but 36 states now since, since 2013, before 2013, there were only nine states that had these voter uh, ID laws. Now, after the heart of the voting right amendment was taken out, 36 states now have uh, these voter ID laws. Um, well, it was eight states that had it previously, but now 36 have it. Now, the reasoning sounds logical, you know, voter ID. You, you have to show your ID at banks and at large events and when you purchase alcohol and you have work IDs and school IDs and medical IDs and on and on you go. So why not have to show a legal ID to vote? After all, everyone over 18 has a driver's license or some sort of ID, right? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And again, keep in mind that when you register, you get a voter registration card. And so voter ID is just a smokescreen and an additional unnecessary step in the process that only limits the people who can vote, basically. And not everybody does have a government-issued ID. Um, and here are some stats that come from the ACLU website. Um, approximately 1 in 10 Americans of voting age do not have a government-issued photo ID. Say that again. 1 in 10. 1 in 10. People of voter age do not have a government ID. Um, however, approximately one in four African Americans of voting age do not have a government issue photo ID. So one in four. And 15% of Americans of voting age who earn less than 35000 a year do not have a government issue photo ID. And so, these, and so the idea of a voter ID is going to eliminate millions of people who otherwise could vote because they got a voter registration card. But because they don't have a, a driver's license or a passport or they don't know where their social security, they've lost their social security card, they don't have their birth certificate, um, you know, they, then it's like, well, you can't vote. Even though you had the voter registration card. Yeah. You see. Um, and so, now why don't, the, why don't they have a, a government-issued ID? Well, it could be because of poverty. You know, they just never got one, you know. It could be that they lost it, and they lost it for several different reasons. Uh, you know, people in a lower class, in a lower economy, le- at the lower economy level, they move around a lot, and, you know, every time you move, you lose stuff. Uh, and so it could be for that. It could be because it costs money to get a new one. And, uh, you know, one, one of the things that I've run into is, is working with people, uh, you know, who are experiencing homelessness and, or maybe people who just get out of jail and uh, they don't have a photo, they don't have a government ID, and you can't get a job without that government ID, and then, you, and then to help them walk through the process of getting the, the government ID. And at the end of the day, the process is like $8. But if you don't have any money, $8 is $8. Yeah. And you can't go to, like, you know, if, if I needed an ID, I would go to the a DMV, go up to the kiosk, you know, swipe my debit card, be done with it. Well, if you don't have a debit card, then it's like, well, if certain people aren't in the office that day, you can't get it. You know, so you sit there all day, you, don't, you end up at the end of the day not having your ID, so you go home, and he's like, I'm not going to put up with that anymore. That was too much of a hassle. And so then before you know it, a year, two years, three years go by, and you never went back. 
uh, you know, to, uh, to get it. And so you could lose it, or if you have a felony conviction and, uh, and you went, you know, they took your driver's license from you, and uh, now you, you don't have to have a felony for this. I mean, it could be a misdemeanor, but they took your driver's license from you, and you can't get your driver's license back until you pay your fines, and every day your fines go up more and more. And so, you know, I have met people in jail who's, who have told me um, that they owe, you know, forty, fifty thousand dollars in court fines before they could ever get their driver's license back. Now, you can petition that if you get the right lawyer, you could go, but a lawyer's going to cost money, but you, you go to a certain judge and certain programs and get the vast, vast majority of that wiped off, if not all of it. Mm-hmm. But if you don't know how to do that and you don't have the money to, to file the paperwork and all that, then you're just, I, I'm, I'm never going to get my driver's license back. And then without that driver's license, you can't get, so you don't have an ID, you know, for, for various reasons. Not everybody has uh, a legal governmental ID. But again, when you register to vote, you get a voter registration card, you know. And, or if you don't even have that, you know, they should have your name, and they can keep record to make sure that this particular person under this particular number only voted once. I mean, that's not, that's not complicated with the technology that we have today. Yeah. That, that wouldn't be com- And so the only purpose of, of stricter voter ID laws is to suppress certain people from voting. I mean, that, that, that's it. Um, so most insidious of these efforts has been, this is from an article, has been the introduction of strict new voter ID laws in Republican-run states across the country because they have been easy to sell as a common-sense anti-fraud measure. It makes all the sense in the world. We want to keep illegal immigrants from voting, so we got to have voter ID. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Without looking at the unintended consequences, which are really the intended consequences. You know, from that, but we think, yeah, that makes sense. I got to show my ID wherever I go. Why not? Why not uh, for that? And all it does is disenfranchise people and cuts. Um, one one article I read, and it may be in something I read here in a minute, uh, that said really it has the potential to cut seven percent uh, off of uh, Democratic votes. Seven seven yeah. percent, and so in a closely in a close election, that can make all the difference in the world. That, that 7% uh, from that. And so voter ID may seem like a good idea, but we have to realize that the history of racism and oppression toward minorities in our country show that it is not a good idea and is meant to suppress the votes of the poor and the minorities. You know, we should make it easier to vote, not more difficult, you know, in, in, a, in a representative democracy like we have. All right, so that, I'll stop there if you've got any comments before we look at mail-in ballots, which is really... Uh, kind of a new thing going on today as far as the controversy. No, no. Continue. I'm a bit of a broken record on some things. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, mail-in ballots have been used for years for military personnel uh, serving overseas or, you know, I have family members who are missionaries overseas and they, would, they can send in their mail-in ballot. Um, so just citizens living overseas, college students have used mail-in ballots, the elderly have used it. You know, and basically anyone who cannot physically make it to the polls have had the ability to use the mail-in ballot. But now, because of COVID-19 and our need to practice social distance, many states are suggesting that all voters receive mail-in ballots or, or at least be given the opportunity to vote by mail-in or vote online, which to me, I have no idea why that's not possible. You know, man, I pay bill. You pay your bills online. <laughs> you do everything online. There has got to be a way you could vote online and it be as secure as any other way. I mean, there's got to be. Yeah. 
And the only reason you don't want to do that is because the numbers of people who would vote would skyrocket, and that could sway the election one way or another. Just change the face of the country. It would change the face of the country if you allowed uh, online voting or broad-use mail-in ballot, which is why people don't want it. You know, because they don't know what would happen. And, and, the, and the elections are so close right now. We're so divided that we don't, we don't, we don't need to, you know, we know what's going to happen if we keep doing it the way we've done it. And we know how to manipulate it so we win the right electoral college vote so that we win an election. Uh, but if we allow this broad-based um, voting for anyone over 18, um, then all of a sudden, you know, yeah, I mean, go back. Just go back in history to the beginning of the country and every ele- election, whatever technology was available. If you look at the percentage uh, or the you know the the number of citizens in the country at the time and the percentage of that actually voted, and just go okay throughout history, this small percentage has shaped what America mm-hmm. operates and, and looks like every step along the way. Going yeah, but if we had given a voice to the majority, because it's far the minority that are voting at any point in history. Yeah, we're not even talking about the money that's in politics that sways it. Yeah. Right? We're not even talking about that. We're just talking about the voter suppression aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. And so so now because of COVID-19, this move has been made just this past week. uh, California passed a bill uh, that said, or passed something. It may not have actually been a bill, but they passed something that said they were going to send in mail-in ballots for every registered voter in California. Now, you can still go to the poll if you want to, but if because of social distancing you're a little bit afraid about getting out, everybody can vote uh, by mail-in. And the Republicans have criticized that because there's, quote, so much fraud in, uh, in mail-in ballots. Uh, and so people like the president and others have, have said there's too much fraud in mail-in ballots, so, so you can't uh, do that. But, uh, uh, but despite, this is from, again, another article uh, from the ACLU, Despite this dramatic increase in mail voting over time, because there are some states at the local level or the state level will allow mass mail-in voting at the state level. At the federal level, you've got to still show up, but at the state level, uh, you could vote by mail. Um, and so in 2018, more than 31 million Americans cast their ballots uh, by mail. You know, that was at the, the midterms. Um, cast their, and that is uh, 25.8, so 26% of election participants did a mail-in. Um, that's across the country as a whole. And, but yet fraud rates remain incredibly small. You know, it, it, the fraud, they're, they're basically in our country. Now, at the local level, you know, for a county commissioner, you may be able to find um, a case where some type of fraud resulted in somebody winning. But at the state and the local level, you, uh, at the state and the federal level, you would, you'd have a hard time finding any election where there was so much voter fraud that the outcome would have been different. You know, there, yeah, there's voter fraud, but it really hasn't affected the outcome. The outcome still, would, you know, taking into consideration all of that. And people who study elections know that there's a percentage of votes, be it in person, on ballot, or whatever, there's a percentage of votes that are going to be fraud. And, uh, and they, calculate that, they can calculate that in very, very easily, and it just it doesn't. You know, the, the fraud is, is low. Part of that is because you can go to jail. Uh, the fines are real high. I mean, there's, there's, strict, um, you know, there's strict punishment if, if you get caught doing a, a voter fraud. And so you could, you could still do the same thing. 
Uh, none of the five states that hold their elections primarily by mail have had any um, voter fraud scandals since making that change. Uh, states that use vote by mail have encountered zero fraud, basically, statistically. You know, it might be, you know, point zero 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 two, but if you round it off, it's zero. Yeah. Zero fraud. Um, and so while mail ballots are more, susceptible, more susceptible to fraud than in-person voting, it is still more likely for an American to be struck by lightning than to commit mailer voting fraud. So the statement of there's so much fraud. It's just in- a lie. Okay. <clears throat> it's just a lie. Um, and so the president, our president said this, mail ballots are, very, are a very dangerous thing for this country. They're fraudulent in many cases. That's a direct quote. But as usual, he made those claims without offering any proof. And furthermore, the voting records show that President Trump regularly votes by mail in New York elections while he's in his home in Florida. So he does it. And he was asked, yeah. you know, why do you do it? And he said, because I can. But yet anybody else who does it, it's fraud, Yeah, you see. Um, and so, the, you know, if he can do it, why can't the rest of us? You know, and, and to be honest, I, if, if I had the opportunity to mail in my ballot or to vote online, I would take that in a heartbeat instead of having to get out there. And, you know, now local elections, you can walk in and out of the voting sure. booth, no problem. But the, uh, this next election, I, you know, I, I expect a massive turnout. And it would be, <laughs> I would be one of the first ones to say, let me vote online, yeah. you know, to, to make it easier um, uh, for me. And so people who regularly follow voter suppression laws say the attempt to limit mail-in ballots is once again an attempt to suppress votes, especially the votes of the poor and of the minorities. Now, back to the, I don't remember the exact number, but back to the Wisconsin um, vote right in the middle of this pandemic, there were like thousands of polling places that were closed that didn't open up because of social distancing. You know, let's have fewer polling sites. And so, and, but guess where the majority of those polling sites were? Tell me. Yeah, in the, right. in the minority and in the poor community. Yeah. You know, and so it's like, well, Shocker. no, they could still vote. They just have to drive to the other side of town. Yeah. You know. In and the that, car that they don't have? Yeah. And, yeah. So that, and so that's another barrier that was in place that shouldn't have been in place. And so a mail-in ballots would take care of that. Mail-in ballots would take care of the intimidation that you might feel at the polls. Sure. I, you know, or, or voting online. And it may not be the right thing to do, but, but in my mind, when I'm saying mail-in ballots, I'm including online, ballot, online yeah. ballots uh, from that. But anyway, so here's some other forms of voter suppression um, that still happen today. Limiting the number of polling stations and the hours of operation, that happened today. Uh, that happens in our, in our day, you know, where we're not going to have that polling station there. Um, eliminating election day registrations, you know, now you've got to register weeks before. Uh, they'll, they'll put out a date. If you want to vote in this election, you've got to register by this date, and it's, it's a few weeks uh, different. Um, restrict voter registration drives, make it harder to have them, um, and, uh, and also shorten early voting periods. You know, and I've noticed that even in our own county, that early voting used to be a longer period of time. It's like it just gets a little, you know, so let's shorten that because, again, early voting – is a um, is really a gift for the working poor. Okay. You know, so they don't they don't have to take a day off work to go vote. Um, you know, they can. Okay, this is we got early voting, and especially if you allow early voting on Saturdays, you know, oh, hey, I got Saturday off, I, I can go vote then, or or 
I'm getting off early today. I can go vote after I get off work, and you've got these options. And so when you limit that or take it away, which I don't think anybody's talking about taking away it entirely, but when you limit it, then that, who that affects the most uh, are the poor and the mar- marginalized uh, from voting. Just, just the very act of limiting that will, will limit the number. Um, and so, you know, make it more difficult for people uh, who move, you know, if you, to stay registered to vote. You know, if you move, you know, what happens to my voter registration? Well, it should be if you're registered to vote and you've got your voter registration card, why does it matter where you live? You know. Yeah. Well, it matters because of the district that you live in because that's for the local levels. And then um, another, an- and that's really the last one that I have down here, is that another voter suppression technique is redrawing the district lines. It's called gerrymandering uh, so that you tilt the odds in favor of a particular uh, political party to win that district. You know, I can carve this off. I can redo it. And, and even in our county, um, I think in the next couple of years or in our whole state, they're going through a, a, an entire redistricting process. And people will be watching that very, very closely because there could have been this part of the country or this part of the state uh, that was Democratic, and then by the way they draw their lines, all of a sudden this big group of people are in this other county that's primarily Republican, then all of a sudden the Republicans or the Democrats, depending on who's doing it, win both counties, yeah. you know, just simply by redrawing the lines. Um, and so that's one way that voter suppression uh, is done. Uh, but anyway, so in, any comments? I'm about finished here, um, but uh, I got a verse of Scripture I want to read for us to consider. But, um, but any other comments? Well, if you're if you're still listening at this point, it's probably highly likely that you might agree agree with this <laughs> point of view. If if you disagree and you're still here, I commend you. Um, but but I would also say if you're feeling a, a a huge amount of pushback and you're having a a visceral reaction to this uh, this idea of systemic corruption in America or systemic voter suppression and throughout history, and, and you're having a hard time swallowing that pill. I get it. I think I, I had a hard time wrapping my brain around it for for a while, and then then it all kind of clicked and was like, this is this is unreal. What we've done as as a society, and and me as a as a white man in 2020, going, man, I I I empathize and I can understand this level of generational anger that must be there and this frustration for marginalized groups in this country. So. I don't, you know, I don't know, I don't know how to bridge the gap on that and how to. Yeah, I, I don't either. And I think really, if, if I said here's here's one takeaway, I mean, we got some things you can do, but kind of like the one thing I want people to at least consider um, is that you know when when you hear you know somebody bring up voter ID and uh, and and it's usually an African American politician or or influential leader, and they immediately say. You know, this is um, this is suppressing the African American vote. Um, as there's a tendency among us white people to say, "No, it's not race. Everything's not a race card. Everything's not about race." Well, this one is. Yeah. If you understand the history, and so if you can understand the angst they have, where they have fought so hard for voter rights, then to see anything that they think is going to infringe on those voter rights, it becomes uh, it becomes a huge issue. In, 20, in 2016, uh, I came this close to not voting at all. And, and in my mind, it wouldn't have been because I didn't care. It's because I cared deeply. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I concluded, you know what? The, the only moral thing I can do is not vote for either party. You know, I, I voted third party at the presidential election for years. Um, 
you know, and but this time I thought, you know what, it would be, for the first time in my life, I think it would be a morally correct decision not to vote at all. But then I was, I was one day sitting around a group of um, elderly African-American women who meet at our community center, and they were talking about voting, and I was just listening. I didn't participate. And I heard them talk from their perspective about how, you know, blood and tears and how the, the, what they're talking about is how they're upset that more younger African-Americans won't vote after all that their generation and the generation before them went through for the right to vote. You know, and so these these ladies were passionate about this that that you got to vote because our if you don't you're spitting on the graves of our of our ancestors. Yeah. And I didn't say anything to them. I just listened. And but when I walked out of that that meeting with them, I, I thought I, I've got I don't have a choice. I got to vote. Yeah. I got I got to vote. I can't I can't not vote because of what they just said. You know, they they were so passionate about what what it had cost them to get the right to vote. You know. But anyway, so here's a verse uh, as we leave. Um, Isaiah chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. The prophet Isaiah says, Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor and their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed people, making widows their prey and robbing their fatherless. And so the prophet says, Woe, which is a, a strong term of condemnation. Woe to those who have these unjust policies and who take advantage of the poor and the widow and who withhold justice from them. And then consider this, this last line. What will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? You know, and, and I'm not a prophet, and, you know, but I hear people saying, is the pandemic God's judgment on America? Usually when they say that, they want to talk about other issues. But when I read that verse, I thought, okay, God is saying you're condemned if you don't take care of the poor. And what's going to happen when disaster comes from afar? And this virus came from China. You know, and I couldn't help but think, is God judging us on some level? And it's not because of individual immoral sins. Yeah. It's because of the immorality of our country as a whole with these systemic injustices that are around us that we still haven't addressed. So just something to think about. The main thing you can do with this is register to vote. <laughs> you know, go register today. Get others to register with you. Those are the main two things. Register to vote and get other people to register to vote with you. It, it, it is important that we have a huge turnout in the, in the November elections this year. Register to vote, and we will see you on the next episode. Floods of Justice podcast looks at the issues of our day from a biblical perspective without the labels. Join the conversation online at floodsofjustice.com or find the Reverend Dr. Kevin Riggs on Twitter at Riggs underscore Kevin.